This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good morning, everybody. Today is January 26th. This morning, Mountain Standard Time on Tuesday. I'm not going to get too much into what's happening because the markets are obviously in flux, but they remain incredibly flat. Dow Jones Industrial Average is up slightly, whereas the S&P 500, NASDAQ, Russell 2000 are down slightly. And we're also seeing a slight decrease in volatility. Right now, the 10-year Treasury is trading a little bit higher, sitting at 1.041%. Ultimately, you know, they're after Yellen's confirmation as Treasury Secretary, they're getting a little bit of a bump there. One thing also is it looks like GE shares are beginning to jump. Interesting stuff on Beyond Meat as well, but uh, Grant, I'll let you kind of talk about that. Yeah, just one highlight there. Uh, Beyond Meat shares jumped 26% as they look to be partnering with uh, Pepsi. So they're going to be partnering to come out with plant-based snacks and drinks. If you've had the Beyond burger at, at Burger King. It, it actually is quite good. So I'll be interesting to see what happens with those those snacks and drinks. One other highlight for me is we did see that short sellers are being squeezed by GameStop. So short sellers as a whole are down 91 billion in January as we're seeing the, the market rally. So we'll be continuing to see if, if those short sellers change positioning or continue to get squeezed. We should, I think we should start today going through a slew of executive orders that happened on the new Biden administration within the last week. Functionally, there's been 10 designed to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. They're going to mandate masks on public transportation, going to direct agencies to use wartime powers, uh, which was ultimately decided against uh, in the Trump administration. It's ultimately going to require U.S. companies to make N95 mask swabs and other equipment. But, you know, there's, there's definitely some other stuff as well. You know, there's going to be a COVID-19 response office that's going to be coordinating the pandemic across a lot of federal agencies, establishing lines of communication. Uh, we're also going to invest a lot more in, in data collection and, and testing and things of the like. Biden really hit the ground running. Uh, I think it's great to see his really push for new treatments and testing as well as vaccines. I think that will really help the economy if we're able to get back to uh, some sense of normalcy with with travel as well as as the vaccine so folks can get back to school and then we can see the the service industry begin to pick up again yeah we'll we'll see what happens in terms of the equity task force and obviously we're waiting on the deal of the 1.9 trillion dollar coronavirus package um, whether that's going to pass and whether that's going to go through budget reconciliation uh, we talked about that a little last week but you know that's going to include 350 billion dollars in state and local government aid 170 billion in K through 12 schools uh, another 50 billion in covid testing and and we're looking at about 20 billion uh, in creating a national vaccine program as well ultimately well, yeah yeah, yeah. Well, he's looking to do the 100 million vaccine in his first 100 days. And a lot of that is going to be fun, funding for state and, and local governments creating vaccination sites. And if he can hit that number, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, right now we seem to be at kind of a run rate of a million vaccinations a day. I, I think they're optimistic that the number can go up a little bit. I listened to some interesting analysis on places like Starbucks could, you know, functionally serve um 
you know, with if, if, if there was to be public private partnerships, companies like Starbucks would be actually good places to, you know, be giving out vaccines. And I also yeah. I also saw on that note that Amazon was looking to partner as well. And they said that they'd be able to help with the vaccination by vaccinating all of their uh, workers in Whole Foods and their warehouses. And, and they do employ a large number of people. So being able to use their facilities, as you mentioned, similar to Starbucks could really with, with getting the vaccine to as many people as possible. Yeah, no, it'll definitely be interesting to see those public and private partnerships play out. Right now, in terms of the stock market, we always compare this to, you know, 1999, but it seems like uh, there's definitely been some investors who recently have been talking about those comparisons as well. You had billionaire global investor uh, Barry Strenlike on Thursday said he's concerned about, you know, the current conditions of the stock market feels a lot like the dot-com bubble bursting in 1990. Uh, that was recently on the Squawk Box, really because, you know, you're in a situation with, you know, there's been prolonged fears, but, you know, the Federal Reserve slashed interest rates to zero and stimulus seems to be heating up. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, last week, at least, NASDAQ was up 100% since the pandemic driven low, which is very indicative of of kind of what we were looking at in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, and, and it it does seem very similar because we had the dot-com bubble mostly around tech. And now we're also seeing, uh, similarly, as you mentioned, NASDAQ at all times high. Uh, we also saw the S&P last week be up 75% from that down in March till then. And, and right as Joe Biden's taken office, we see the NASDAQ, S&P and Dow Jones all pretty much at, at records high and, and continuing. One point that you just mentioned that that I would also like to highlight is, is that he was warning people not to be too over levered right now, especially in the equity market, uh, because rates are so low and, and trying to be high, highly leveraged. If we do see uh, a bit of a correction, that could generate uh, huge losses. He, he also commented that, and this was similar to the dot-com era, was that a lot of people are leaning on social media sites, so TikTok, uh, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is, for, for stock ideas. And that's really contributing to a lot of these rallies that we're seeing. Um, so people are not really doing the research, but they see it on a social media platform and they keep on buying it, which is a, a, uh, inflating prices. Uh, so that's one thing to, to keep in mind is that we are seeing a lot of uh, more younger investors through Robinhood apps be more involved in the market than we had previously saw. Right. And that's not too much unlike what was going on in 95. You had some highly speculative um, Internet stocks um, drove the Nasdaq up, you know, 500 percent from 95 till March 2000 when 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 it corrected. But that was largely, you know, on the backs of uh, younger consumers who, you know, at the time were, um, you know, baby boomers in their 30s were, you know, did a lot of that. And we're, we're certainly seeing something similar as well. Well, it's a herding mentality, and and we we did see companies begin to start changing their names in the '90s to reflect tech or or different names, even though they weren't really involved in tech. So people were hopping on that. One other thing he did mention: stimulus uh, is too big, and we continue to see the market rise. One question that we keep on asking is: Is the stimulus too much, and is it going to overheat the economy? We see Joe Biden's plan, which would be again a, a really large number. We talked about it last week on the podcast. 
Drew, what's your take on if this new stimulus could overheat the economy? Well, it seems like there's some serious concern. Um, Right now, the plan is worth about 9% of pre-crisis GDP. Uh, So it would be, you know, a lot more, roughly twice the size of, you know, Obama's spending package in 2009. Uh, of course, when we look at that now, uh, U.S. grew relative to other countries, but it was actually, you know, it was quite sluggish growth. Um, the recessions are a lot different because this is there's going to be a lot of pent up demand on this, and people, you know, are simply not not buying because because of the. The, you know, it's 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 a pandemic, right? So it's it's a very different in nature. If you look at you know Larry Summers, who was an advisor to Obama, you know he's worried that if we he said as much if we get COVID behind us, we have an economy that is on fire. Um, last week, which is definitely something to look at because you know the man was been instrumental in looking at you know a couple of our most recent recessions. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, when we look at the number of non-farm jobs it's right now our unemployment's you know about 6.3 percent uh it's below its pandemic peak so we think of what happened you know recently in terms of jobless claims increasing everything that might just be a lull rather than a double dip uh, and if that's the case injecting you know nine percent gdp uh you know or pre-pandemic gdp you know into another stimulus uh it could be cause to worry about some inflation but but right that that could be tomorrow's problem as well so uh, it's just you, you really got to compare the two things the crisis today versus what what could ultimately be tomorrow's problem and we have seen the new treasury secretary janet yellen saying that there we do need continued stimulus um but we are seeing some of the the centrist senate members saying that another round of, of payments maybe need to be more targeted. And, and I think you're right. I, I think there's two things that could be suspect to overheating. You have this increase of stimulus, and then you also have the monetary policy from the Fed, who is continuing um, to stabilize and buy uh, bonds in the credit market. But then you're also uh, seeing them keep their uh, their rates very low. Um, so the combined, we could see them really overshoot that 2% inflation targets. Um, and, and with with the really expansionary fiscal policy, as well as the loose monetary policy, those coupled can really cause the, the economy to overheat, in my opinion. Um, but I, I do think you have a point that that could be tomorrow's problem, not today's issue. Yeah, but also I think there's there's good reason to you know feel confident in the Fed right now. Um, I mean, obviously, Jerome Powell last week said that the time to raise interest rates is no time soon kind of pushed aside the idea that the fed might start might soon start tapering you know it's 120 billion dollar monthly purchases of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities uh, but if you do get a lot of legislative stimulus I, I do think you know monetary policy will 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 change in accordance to that Absolutely. And if we think about why there is a stimulus, it's really around uh, helping people who are unemployed. We saw in 2019 that 27% of unemployed workers received benefits, uh, a share that's really been declining in the last 20 years. Uh, and really the reason is money and, and it comes down to the architecture of these unemployment programs. 
with states and, and local governments not wanting to raise taxes on employers, uh, which has caused then states to not have the, the money to be able to have these unemployment programs. So therefore, they're, they're cutting benefits. It, it's interesting to see because you can take a look at, at some of the states here and, and really States wanting to be business friendly with lower taxes, uh, but then that allows their unemployment system to become underfunded. And that's really not a good situation if we think about where we are today with with unemployment. Yeah, I mean, obviously, really the wage base against which unemployment taxes are levied enough kind of remains stuck. So what it is, is it's kind of based on political willingness, right, because the, the system can't adequately compensate. So you've seen over the last several decades in terms of recessions, no, it's really the federal government has to ultimately, you know, just decide to to increase the spending. And and we did see that there is call for the federal government to step in. We did see the Obama administration provide billions of dollars to help states help create funding for these programs with with uh, generous incentives to more broadly help part-time workers and um, and workers who are laid off. We did see many states go in the opposite direction, and so we saw unemployment funds uh, continue to be exhausted. Today, the unemployment funds in 19 states debt of 47 billion to the federal government. So, it, it in a time where we do see more people need unemployment, we are seeing that a large number of states are already indebted to the federal government. One, one thing we, we've talked about, but we should kind of readdress is now that there's a new administration, what the relationship with China will look like. In some ways, there seems to be a united front against China when we're looking at Sweden. So the Swedish government has ultimately decided that they would ban Huawei and the smaller Chinese firm ZTE from its 5G telecommunications um, network. What's been interesting, obviously, though, is Ericsson, you know, the Swedish, uh, big Swedish tech company, is is against that. Which is odd because, you know, ultimately it would make Sweden or Ericsson, you know, kind of a monopoly with its own country. But at the end of the day, Sweden, while, you know, hyper rich and hyper industrialized, is a country of roughly 10 million people, whereas, you know, China's 8% of its market. And you see a similar case with uh, Howard Schultz and Starbucks, who's been really trying to talk to, you know, American policymakers to uh, decrease tensions with China because at the end of the day, I mean, the loyalty to market share and, and shareholders and their company and everything else uh, is ultimately greater than their home countries. So that is something that even if there is political will to rein in China's influence, you're going to see from C-suites, you know, across the across the globe, definitely, you know, some wariness in terms of going through going through with this. And the 5G is a, is really a great example because that is really important for national security and, and nation's interests. Um, and they really want to be involved as an owner. Uh, similarly, what they have with, with postal services in many Western countries, which is why we, we did see the thought of investing in uh, Ericsson, the U.S. investing in Ericsson. So then we have some skin in the game. 
there are some other ways that Western countries and, and really governments can incentivize, encourage business moving away uh, from China and being so focused on that. We have seen supply chains move to different countries like Vietnam and Cambodia. Another thing is have uh, create incentives for more high tech manufacturing because uh, that would bring one jobs to these Western countries below on China for, for the high-tech manufacturing. And ultimately, that would be uh, less costly to have those incentive programs than to lose, as you mentioned, lose major firms like Ericsson or, or Starbucks uh, and, and lose the grace of those C-suites. You're ultimately going to have to find, you know, different markets too. I mean, there's obviously an emerging need for 5G in Africa uh, and, and other parts of the developed world. But I do think this this administration, you know, the the thing with China is a crisis, but there's not a lot of daylight between so far, it seems how the new ad, Biden administration has a stance on China versus the Trump administration. You know, there's going to be disagreements on stuff like, you know, Taiwan and, and human rights and what's going on um, amongst the Uyghur populations and everything else. Uh, but definitely when it comes to, you know, these issues of trade, it, it, it is going to be, you know, I think it's going to be a continuation in in in, um, in in some regards. Well, it will be interesting to see what happens with the U.S.-China relations, because, uh, as you mentioned, it's a lot different administration policies that the Biden administration inherited from the Trump administration than when the Obama administration passed it on to Trump. Uh, but it's not just the United States. We do see 73 percent of Americans now have a negative view on China. Um, and a lot of the other Western countries also have a negative view on China. But I think the important thing is to really go back to the drawing board with China, because we did see that the Trump administration did have a big push for this phase one deal. Uh, and and really, that was great on paper, but we didn't really see anything really come of it from the Chinese uh, or, or the Trump administration. We did see the tick for tack tariffs. That would be one thing that we should uh, revisit. But a lot of the concessions that we saw from China really didn't come through. So how the Biden administration begins negotiations on giving up some of those those tariffs, but then also negotiating over the Hong Kong sanctions, because um, we did see that over the Hong Kong has still continued to be uh, a topic. And then we did mention but Huawei tech restrictions and then also the delisting of various Chinese companies on our exchanges. Uh, it seems like things are things are heating up and both sides have key negotiating points that they'll want to get across. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot of talks comparing this to the Cold War. And if you're looking at foreign relations, you know, you can have kind of a unipolar or a bilateral or a multipolar world. And I was just on a CE like course with advisors perspective. They they, they were really were discussing the facts. Uh, they had a, they had a course on China, but that. I mean, it's unlike the Cold War in the sense that, you know, we haven't been able to stop our allies from pursuing, you know, Chinese technology and 5G uh, agreements. Yeah, I mean, we just mentioned Sweden. There's definitely some outliers, but there are going to be countries who still have a vested interest in China. Uh, you know, we, we talked about how 
yes, the average, you know, 81% of Australia has, Australians have a bad relation or a bad view of China, 74% of Brits, 85% of Swedes, 71% of Germans. But when you look at those countries, they don't have much better views on us either. Right. So it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, so it is going to be tough to kind of create this new world of alliances, uh, have companies, you know, find and invest in new markets. I think one of the most startling things is when we look at 2000, direct investment in the U.S. by foreign companies plummeted 49 percent, uh, ending at 134 billion. Whereas by contrast, foreign direct investment in China grew by 4% and ended at 163 billion in 2020. So last year was the first year in history where foreign direct investment in China was larger than the United States. Investment in the United States by foreign companies has gone down precipitously since 2015. Uh, the Commerce Department you know, stated that that was the high with $440 billion. So, it seems like right now we are in a losing losing battle or we're losing the battle currently we've discussed ways we can kind of hopefully steer the ship around but it's 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 going to be a slog it really is yeah and and i think that's a great point and we are seeing that um the the chinese government is really invested in growing their economy with their incentives for uh, local companies. But uh, the United States is going to continue to have to take a, a bigger stance on it and also work with other Western countries, um, especially if we think it's 5G seems to be a common topic. So to see how they can partner with other countries on that. Let's kind of end with the discussion on SPACs, which stand for special purpose acquisition companies. Ultimately, it's a way for a company to go public without, you know, a lot of the traditional paperwork and 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 uh, haul of, you know, a traditional IPO. But it appears that, you know, there's some people who are worried about that, including, you know, Goldman Sachs. Grant, let's talk a little bit about, you know, special purpose acquisition companies, what they are and, you know, why why some people, you know, amongst Goldman are, are skeptical. Well, they are the hottest topic on Wall Street right now. And, and as you mentioned, that so they are special purpose acquisition companies, also known as blank check companies. Blank check companies got a really bad rap um, in the 80s and 90s. And now the SPAC is what comes out of them. Um, and and it's it's a better vehicle, but there, there still are some causes for worry. And really what the SPAC is, is a way for a company to go public without a traditional IPO or with all the paperwork that's associated with it. So investors pool their money together, uh, but they don't really know what they're investing in, in until later on. So uh, then once they go public, then, then look for a, a company to partner, which therefore that company can go trade their shares publicly. Uh, without having to go with the traditional filing. Uh, and, and it does ha be helpful for the investors of the SPAC because they are able to withdraw their money uh, once they know what company it is so they can withdraw their money. Whereas before in the in the old blank check companies, uh, once you were invested, you stayed invested. If the SPAC does not complete an acquisition within two years, they must return the, the funds to the investor. So there is a little bit of a, a way out for them. There are big names in in uh, SPACs currently. We also see that just in, 
in January of this year. We've already raised 20 billion in SPACs, and that is more than any other year before 2020. Uh, in 2020, we saw over 80 billion fl funds flow into SPACs. Key names uh, in the investment world uh, are getting involved. Even Shaquille O'Neal has a SPAC. But really, we did see Goldman warn that because there is a uh, limitation on the amount of information that is offered, that other investors may not be able to uh, have a good idea of what is uh, being offered. Also, since there are less requirements on the filing, some companies that probably wouldn't be able to go public with all of the disclaimers that are needed and the filing, that now these companies that may not have the best corporate governance or traditional profits, uh, that may cause a problem moving forward. But we are continuing to see that in North America, anyways, this is a really hot topic that we're going to continue to see as it's easier for companies and quicker for companies to go public with with less disclosures. Yeah. And I think an additional benefit is that people will, will participate in SPACs, uh, but ultimately there doesn't have to be the same sweeteners like like warrants, right? So you have uh, Thama Bravo Advantage, which is a special uh, special purpose acquisition company. It raised you know nine hundred billion or nine sorry nine hundred million um, the other week, and it didn't have to offer any warrants. So so yeah, I, I think that's part of the allure as well. And with that, let's kind of get into you know the end of it and see. Is there anything we overlooked or is there anything we should be looking out for? Uh, one thing that is, we should be looking out for is we did see coming from the Biden administration, we saw that there is going to be some policy around in the climate change. Uh, we did see Larry Fink. So Larry Fink is the chief of BlackRock. He sent out his annual letter uh, and really taking a big stance on corporate climate disclosures and what their climate actions are with the goal to be uh, net zero. So BlackRock has $9 trillion of investment and has significant influence in a lot of different sectors. So um, if BlackRock is really throwing their weight behind uh, climate change, we could see a lot of companies taking a, a bigger stance on, on their climate change initiatives. What about you, Drew? Yeah, one thing I'll be looking at is it seems that tech companies really are poised to like kind of have some big uh, fourth quarter results, but also we should look at uh, how much they're going to be spending on ads, yeah, which which it seems like across the board, um, you know, Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook, uh, a lot of companies are, are looking to do some big ad buys. So, you know, that'd be indicative of, you know, a, a bullish tech sector and social media sector. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for liking and subscribing. We'll talk to you next week and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. 
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.